Welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. This is a podcast designed to help you lead your life enthusiastically today, tomorrow, and every other day. I am your host, Ron Kaiser, positive health psychologist, keynote and TEDx speaker, and also author of the triple award-winning book, Rejuvenating the Art and Science of Growing Older with Enthusiasm. My podcast is the Mental Health Gym. It's your source of information about all kinds of things related to wellness, positive psychology, my own particular spin on it that I call goal achieving psychology, rejuvenating, and other wellness related topics. It's also a place where you can contact me directly and also suggest guests for future podcasts. As listeners to the podcast know, my goal is always to bring you most interesting guests who lead their own lives enthusiastically and have different ways of helping us to become the best versions of ourselves. And sometimes in doing so, it means confronting adversities and issues that we may not expect to. And so our guest today is uniquely prepared to discuss one of those issues that a lot of people don't like to talk about or think about, but many people have to face. Carlin Maddox is a retired journalist, editor, and publisher, and he is the author of the book, A Path Revealed, How Hope, Love, and Joy Found Us Deep in a Maze Called Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is that word that many of us who are of my age uh, weren't aware of as we were growing up, but uh, now with people living longer and uh, lots more knowledge around this very difficult and troubling disease is in the popular lexicon. But there are different ways of dealing with it and different ways that it presents itself. So we're going to learn more about that. So Carlin, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. Really looking forward to our conversation. Ron, thank you very much. I look forward to a conversation with you and with your audience. And great. Just well, to be able to be, go ahead. Before we talk much about Alzheimer's and its impact, uh, I always like to give our listeners a flavor of your own personal background and what life was like with you as in, in addition to what you've done in this area. So uh, tell us a little bit about, about your own history. I am a, a retired journalist. I uh, started a business magazine in the Tampa Bay area, Florida, back in 1984. I had been working with the St. Petersburg Times as a business writer at that time uh, before, before I started the magazine. Uh, my wife, Martha, was deeply involved in politics and civic activities. She had been on the um, St. Petersburg City Council for six years in the mid-1980s. Hmm. She subsequently, and in, in, in the mid, in, in, I guess in 1996, uh, ran for an open seat in the Florida State Legislature. She was also involved civically with various uh, organizations and nonprofits and um, just a very active person. We have uh, three children, 
at the time of Martha's diagnosis, which uh, was 1997, uh, she had just turned 50. I was 52. Our three children were still in high school and college. And that gives uh, just a quick background in terms of where we were coming from. Martha was a very confident person, a, uh, a very energetic and involved person and much more energetic than I was. But uh, we both were uh, very actively involved in our community and um, in, in, in a variety of ways. Yes. So it sounds like uh, you had a lot going for you as an individual, as a couple and as a family. Uh, but the operational term or the, the thing that perked up my ear was you said that she was like 50 when she was diagnosed. Uh, you know, yes. we were used to thinking of Alzheimer's as, as an old person's disease. Don't consider 50 old, but how, how rare is it uh, for somebody to be diagnosed at that age? Well, right now, 50 looks pretty young to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it was young then in relation to something called Alzheimer's. I'd never even heard of the term. If I had, I hadn't paid any attention to it. Neither had Martha. But it, it is rare and still rare. It's, it's called, at that stage, it's called early onset Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Uh, by that, uh, I think the medical community means anyone under age 65 who's diagnosed with this. Uh, today, there are about six and a half million people that are diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And of that six and a half million, maybe three to 400,000 are under age 65. So that gives you uh, a, a sense of the, the rarity of it uh, at, at age 65. At age 50, I mean. We were just really caught way off guard by this. Yeah, well, that's, uh, I don't know how to ask it any other way. I, I always tell my audience that I usually try to limit myself to one dumb question uh, each, each podcast episode. Um, so let me get that out of the way first, because I don't know how to ask it. But how did that hit you, uh, you know, to get that kind of diagnosis at age 50? Well, if you get one dumb question, I get three or four dumb answers. So <laughs> we'll go we'll go from there, Ron. Uh, but it was in, well, let me go, let me back up. In, in uh, 1996 is when Martha ran for an open seat in the Florida State Legislature. And it was not until, and, and she, lost, she lost that by 20 votes, which in hindsight, that hurt, that hurt Martha and it hurt me. But in hindsight, I'm very thankful that she did lose that. We as a family finally got Martha into a neurologist in July of, of 97. And she went by herself to go through some testing and the like. And when I got home from work and Martha was at home, I asked her how it went. And Martha said, well, the doctor was just taking too long. So I just left. And I said, oh, my. And it had taken us nine months to work with her to go see. So we got another appointment set up. And I went with Martha at this time to go through, to be there with her. And so she was tested in early 97, and the results we got were in September 20, 97. And when we got the results, 
Our world was not turned upside down. It imploded before us. It felt like we were thrown out of a plane 10,000 feet up with nothing to hold on to but ourselves. And um, it was, it was, it just imploded. It's all I can, it's all I can describe it. And uh, when we got home after that uh, diagnosis, well, what did not help us in getting this diagnosis, Ron, and you may have some appreciation for this, the neurologist that had tested us, we really liked, and he was warm, he was empathetic, uh, but when we, we were expected to see him when, the, when we got the results, but he had been called out on an emergency, and, and an associate of his was the one that we were supposed to talk to, and that gave me concern, gave me pause. And this associate could have uh, could have been Dr. Spock on Star Trek. He was cold. He was he was uh, cerebral. Anything but warm and empathetic. And so he sat down in his monotone voice. Said, "I'm sorry, but it looks like you have early onset Alzheimer's," and started going into the technicalities of that. And I'm just thinking to myself, "Get us out of here." We finally got out of there. Got home, had a long, hard cry. And the first things, first thing Martha told me after our cry was, Carlin, I do not want to tell a soul. I don't want to tell our children. I don't want to tell my parents. I don't want to tell my brothers. And I do not want to tell our friends. I took a deep breath and said, okay. Because I, I knew that family and friends that knew something was going on with Martha, but did not know what. So that's where we sort of got started, uh, Ron. Just from a practical standpoint, why did you go to a neurologist in the first place? I mean, it, uh, what, what were the, the symptoms or clues yeah. or reasons to, to even look that way? And then I'm going to ask a, a second question because I want to make sure that we that we get to it because I can see the response of the first one could do, could get us in a different area, but I do want to make sure that we get covered. The thing, Alzheimer's isn't like a heart attack or a stroke where, you know, when you get the diagnosis in life, uh, your, your body doesn't necessarily change abruptly. So right. I, I guess the, the question is, at least in the early stages, how did how did you deal with it? So, first of all, okay. uh, you know, you, you I, remember I, the second. I'm aware of it, and how did address it in the the early stages when presumably, you know, things weren't a whole lot different than they were a month or before, at least at least from a medical standpoint. Well, you remember the second question. I'll start with the first question here. The year before Martha's diagnosis, as I've mentioned, that she had been in a um, a, a, a political campaign for an open seat in the Florida State Legislature. And it was in, I, I think about July of that year, that she was in, uh, in, a, in a panel before the most important political event through that whole campaign, something called the Tiger Bay Club here. And um, she was one of four uh, who were running for this open seat. And... I had seen Martha in that situation many times before and just handled the questions calmly, just very and completely and responsibly and, and the like. But on this day, 
Martha had to ask for every question to be repeated. And then when she answered the questions, they were about 10 to 15 degrees off the mark. And I had no idea what was going on. And when we got home, I just said, well, Martha, what was going on there? And she thought everything went well. And, and she said, what are, you, what are you talking about? And so it was from that marker that when I, and I was, as I shared this with our children, we began to try to get her in to see not just a doctor, but a neurologist. Uh, but And we, a, after that, I was becoming more cognizant, more aware that Martha was uh, just forgetting appointments and forgetting people's names that she shouldn't be, uh, particularly not, not just as a person, but uh, if she was in politics or taking a high profile in civic affairs, uh, you, that just can't be. And, and so that was what led us to get Martha in to see the neurologist. As far as, yes, you're right, Martha's phys- uh, physical body had not changed at all. We were still hitting tennis ball, tennis and, and, and the like. What did change that, that's right up your alley, Martha had always been a very confident person. Her confidence with this diagnosis went through the floor. Uh, she became, instead of outgoing, she became much more in, inward and passive. And uh, it was very disturbing to see. I mean, it was it, that's it, very, could see that change very well. Her, her, her physical. Uh, involvements and stuff were were still fine, and I can't tell you just a moment by moment when she began to lose memory or when she began to lose ability to talk or the like. But those all those were subsequent and up ultimate to that. So we were we were in a real pickle uh, in terms of where do we go and how do we go forward. I'd said that Martha did not want to talk to a soul other than me about this. There was one person that Martha did was willing to talk to, and that was a retired minister in town here who had married us back in the day and who had been friends of Martha's before I knew Martha. And uh, that was a man by the name of Lacey. And uh, we had, um, she, she said she was willing to talk to Lacey about this. And uh, so I called Lacey and he came immediately the next day. And we shared with him, uh, I shared with him what we had been hearing. And Lacey was a big, big guy. He was six foot four and weighed 250, 60 pounds. And, and uh, he began to break down crying when he heard this as well. And uh, I, I, Martha and I were sitting on the couch and Lacey was in a chair opposite us. He asked to swap places with me and then just uh, sat by Martha and just had a good cry with her and a hug. After he collected himself, he said, you know, uh, I would suggest to you that you go visit a friend of mine in Kentucky 
a Sister Elaine with the Sisters of Loretta community there. She's the retreat director. And I have sent many of my friends who are in the midst of a crisis to visit with her. I don't know what you would get out of this, but I think it would be meaningful. And so after Lacey left, we uh, he gave us her phone number and the like. And after he left, we talked about it. And we did go up to visit with Sister Elaine three weeks later. And that was, that was an important moment in our uh, odyssey here. Uh, it, it important in the sense that it, gave, it got us out of our environment here in St. Pete, got us away from friends and family and the like, able to just chat with her. Uh, it's not that Sister Elaine had many answers, uh, but she was a great listener. Uh, we were permitted to just sort of roam this, the grounds here. They had 800 acres of farmland there in Kentucky and uh, gave Martha and me a chance just to talk and sort through and whatever and uh, just sort of collect ourselves. And there were several things that Sister Elaine told us uh, just in a sharing way. Uh, one of them being um, that, you know, you might want to explore the difference between being, between being willful and being willing. And I was an entrepreneurial publisher. Martha was in politics. Neither one of us understood what she was talking about. She pointed us to a little book in her library, and I forget the title and the author. I read it while, while Varys came through it, and it just made no sense to me at that time. But the difference between willfulness, i.e. stubbornness, and willingness, and being open and receiving and receptive, and that stuck in my mind. Uh, if it didn't stick in Martha's, it certainly did mine. The other thing that she was suggesting said so you might want to check out meditation and what it may help you with. And that was all she said. And um, I had never meditated. And this was in 1997. And that was just uh, just becoming uh, in the mainstream a bit. And Martha had never meditated. Uh, but we got back and, and got with Lacey. And he, he wanted to know how the week went with us. And, and um and I asked Lacey, who was a Presbyterian minister, I said, what do you know about meditation? I didn't expect him to know anything. I mean, we were Presbyterians, for goodness sakes. We didn't know what meditation was. And uh, he pointed us to a particular Catholic um, monk by the name of John Main, who he says he has about the simplest and the most authoritative approach that I'm familiar with. And so uh, I got a, a couple of books of his and began to read, and Martha and I began the practice of meditating uh, about 15 to 20 minutes in the morning and 15 to 20 minutes in the evening together. And um, just uh, won't, won't, won't belabor this, but we, we, we did this together, uh, and I would repeat the word uh, quietly for us. I didn't know if Martha would, would be repeating it, so I did it. And over time, I began to see Martha's anxiety level began to just diminish appreciably. Hmm. And my anxiety level began to diminish appreciably. 
And so that's sort of where we started in on this odyssey. And uh, I'm wondering, I mean, there's so many questions that get raised from this, but obviously it appears that uh, spirituality was an important part of your journey through dealing with this, whether it be who you communicated with or meditation, which I think is spiritual. Um, I know our listeners, we have a continuum from atheists to devout practitioners of various religions. How, how important do you think that, at least in your case, spirituality was, was a factor in being able to, to cope with the, the disorder? Yeah, um, just as I've uh, referred to, our, back, our faith tradition comes out of the Christian faith tradition, and that is by no means uh, a knocking whoever, whatever another person's faith tradition is or is not. I mean, what I was looking for and we were looking for was uh, a way to survive the consequences, the, 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 the symptoms, the volatility of the symptoms of this disease. And so in my blog, I, I share our story. In my book, I share our story. But by no means is it another person's story. It's just a way to connect. But what I discovered over time, a crisis like Alzheimer's is, is not just a physical crisis. There are deeply embedded emotional issues mental issues, spiritual issues, uh, issues like resentment, and not, not just uh, arising out of this diagnosis, but going back deep into our lives in terms of with parents and friends and the like. And so uh, I began to see, uh, not immediately by any means, but over time, that there was just a real importance to be able to Forgive others, forgive parents for what uh, they may or may not have done. Uh, forgive myself. I, I remember one of my mentors through this odyssey uh, just said, Carlin, if you can remember nothing else, remember this. Be gentle on yourself. You, you are not perfect. And I was a perfectionist by nature. Uh, but be gentle with yourself. And as I was being learning what this meant, I began to learn to be gentle with Martha. And I mean, there were early on, Martha would make statements that made no sense, Ron. And so I would try to correct her. And I began to understand that that was just futile. Uh, and ultimately, I began to see that my task as a caregiver, however I could do it, was to step into Martha's world and try to understand what she was trying to convey to me or to others around her and to be responsive to that, not to what I heard her say, but to what I thought was motivating her to say what she said and uh, to... Um, connect with that and to be responsive to it. That's, that's such an interesting concept. And you should be real, real proud of the way that you handled it and 
how supportive you were. As you're talking, I was thinking, I, my grandchildren are in high school and I know many other high school and college age kids. I can't imagine anything that a, a person that age is probably less prepared for than to learn that their competent parent you know, has, has a disease like Alzheimer's. Um, how did your kids cope with this? And, and uh, how about friends? Uh, you know, you said that she had said, you're not gonna tell anybody. I mean, at some point, whether you did or not, people obviously become aware of it. So kind of a yeah. hard question again, your kids yeah. and, and friends. Let, let, let's, let's start with the kids. Um, before Martha went in, uh, for the testing and the diagnosis. Rachel, particularly, she was a freshman in college. And our son, David, was a senior in college, and our daughter, Catherine, was still in high school. She, uh, they all knew that Martha was going to go in uh, for the testing and getting the results. And so after, after we got the results, Rachel was on the phone to her mom and said, well, uh, what was the outcome, Mom? How, how are things? And Martha told her, said, Rachel, everything is just fine. No problem. And uh, that was a relief to Rachel. <laughs> and uh, uh, obviously, something like Alzheimer's, mental disabilities, there is still a stigma surrounding this kind of thing. And so that's what was driving, I think, Martha and whatever in this. But uh, it was about, uh, it was a couple of weeks after we visited with Sister Elaine in Kentucky that we went up to see, Rachel was in college in North Carolina as well as our son. And we went to our son's college and Rachel came over. And at that point, Martha agreed to be able, agreed that we would tell the children what the, what the facts were. So we were in our motel room at David's college, and um, Martha said, uh, I'm, I'm willing to tell them, but I do not want to be in the room when we tell them. And I said, okay. So she, when David and Rachel were there, and uh, uh, she went into a bedroom while I, we were in the living room, and I said, here's what we, what we know, and shared that with them, and both of them were pretty shocked, and so shortly after that, Martha came out of the bedroom looking very sheepish because she knew that she had not told Rachel the truth earlier on the telephone. And she looked at Rachel and Rachel looked at her and Martha began to cry and said, I'm sorry, I didn't, or something to the effect, I didn't tell you the truth. But there was a good, good cry there. One of, one of the things that happened, well, what happened from the very beginning, uh, Ron, I began to keep a journal, not for, quote, spiritual reasons, but just I had so much information coming at me from so many different angles. I just couldn't keep up with it all. So I just kept writing things down, writing things down and uh, insights that I was having and observations I was having and, and the like. And when I would be writing something I thought would be appropriate for the children to sort of know where my head was, where we were, 
I would make copies of that and send David and Rachel a copy at college and gave Catherine a copy of it at home. And so they began to stay abreast of what we were doing. They were just not operating completely in the dark from where we were. After her, after Rachel, as I said, Rachel had been a freshman with a diagnosis, David is senior. After both of them got home, so that would be about four years later, uh, they were both living in, either in Tampa or St. Pete. And um, they came to me and they said, Daddy, we would like to give you a weekend a month off. And that turned out to be the greatest gift I ever received through the 17 years that we were living through Alzheimer's. And uh, I said, really, is that what you really want to do that? They said, yes, we, we will take care of mommy over that weekend and you can go off and go wherever you want to. I wound up going to a nearby monastery. Just that was the best place I could find to where I could vent. I could go out and yell at the orange groves and run, jog and, and pray and cry and sleep. And the, the brothers, once they got sort of out of their cloaks, they were a bunch of jokesters and they were great people to, to be with. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, I wound up doing that every month. I'd leave on Friday afternoon after work and come back Sunday afternoon. So the children had to grow up real quick, Ron. Uh, they began to, they had to swap roles with their mother at this point, at this stage, uh, taking care of her and making sure she was okay and, and the like. And so they became uh, adult kids very early, very quickly. And how about friends? Did Because uh, I know this is a position that many of us find ourselves in and knowing how do we react to somebody who's a friend who, you know, we see is obviously changing. In some cases, we know that the, the diagnosis in some cases not. I'm wondering uh, whether, well, how people did react and how you would hope people yeah. can react. We uh, obviously the word began to get out, and and, I, and people would ask me, and I would at that point begin to feel comfortable sharing with them. And and some friends, some friends, uh, Ron just sort of disappeared. Uh, some friends though would come in and and be with Martha and have go to lunch with her and, and be with her during the day and, and the like. I mean, I forget how many years, it was two or three years that it, I felt comfortable that with Martha living, being at home by herself or being, getting with friends and still driving. And, um, but the, the friends who sort of stuck, stuck by and were willing to sort of, go through this thing with Martha, uh, they were they were great in terms of just uh, being with her and connecting with her and dancing with her. And Martha loved to dance. Martha loved to sing. And, and it, 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 they, were, they were very helpful. We had a sister-in-law, KK, who's uh, extremely helpful in, in this whole process. Um, 
a couple of years after after um, Martha's diagnosis, uh, KK came to Martha and said, Martha, I'm taking a watercolor painting class. Would you like to join me? And Martha and KK were good friends. And I was wondering whether Martha would pick up on this idea or not, but she jumped on the idea to, to be with KK for any length of time. And so they started this watercolor painting class and Martha had never been into painting. She was a, an outdoors girl. And, um, and so Martha's confidence until then was still at a very low grade. She, she was still not the Martha of before. But as Martha got into this painting class, uh, and this lasted about three years, uh, as she got into this painting class, her confidence just went sky high. She loved this. Uh, it was showing in the work that she was doing. And that, that was just a, an important milestone in our, in our odyssey here. So, yes, that was um, just the friends who connected, KK who connected, were just uh, very vital to this process. Her mother connected and and came over and, and sat with Martha a good while, and um, that was very important. And just I would share with your your listeners that um, if you can find a support group uh, for uh, to help, I mean, at I, at in 1997, I call that the dark ages of Alzheimer's still. I couldn't find us. There was one support group I talked to our doctor about. Is that something I should get involved with? And he, and he discouraged me because he said, Carlin, most of the ones in this support group, their spouses are very far along in this. And it may just depress you more than it help you to be in, in that one. And that's the only one I could find. They were just it, not as prevalent then as as support groups are today and um, in terms of just listening to other people's stories and saying, look, I've got this problem. How do you handle that? And, and the like that, that is critical if you can find one that you're comfortable with. Okay. So, yeah, another thing that KK did for us, it came clear to me that there was a time I was still going to work, but that it was, just couldn't leave Martha at home by herself anymore. And so I was trying to get someone to come in, a paid caregiver to come in during the day. And the first couple of people I brought in, Martha just didn't want to have anything to do with them. But she understood what they were and she, she was a proud woman and she wasn't going to do it. But what KK hit on, an idea that she hit on was the, the next person that I found that to possibly be a caregiver she said, well, let's let's do this. And so she called up Martha and said, Martha, I've got a friend by the name of Tricia. And we want to come over and just go to lunch and have some fun together and the like. And, and so Martha accepted, didn't, didn't call her a caregiver. This was KK's friend. And um, so they came over and had a good two or three hours together. They did that one more time and had a fun time together. And by that time... Tricia was now Martha's friend. And so Martha's friend, Tricia, started coming in on a daily basis or maybe three or four times, three times a week. And I had somebody else then ultimately coming in two times a week. And, and we were able to bridge that uh, obstacle 
through that. I, I didn't think that up. That was that was KK, and she was she was a real gift through this. Okay. So it's obvious uh, that some of the things that are are critical for somebody who is the spouse of of somebody with Alzheimer's is to you mentioning the support group having having some time to yourself and having caregivers we're running short on time but are there any other things that uh particularly you can advise people who are dealing with this in terms of managing their own self-care and or being the the most effective supportive spouse for uh I, I, I think i would tell you what not to do <laughs> I had the stupid notion, Ron, that I could handle this by myself. Mm. And it almost broke me. And were it not for friends like and KK and mentors that I met along the way uh, to help tap their insights and the like, uh, and this one mentor who just reminded me, be gentle on yourself, Carlin. I had to go through a hard process of knowing that I was not perfect and I had no perfect solutions to this. And uh, so I, I guess I would leave that with you. I, I get into our story in our, our book called, as you mentioned, A Path Revealed, How Hope, Love, and Joy Found Us in a maze called Alzheimer's. And it's on Amazon. Uh, you can find it there. It's also under my name, Carlin Maddox, C-A-R-L-E-N-M-A-D-D-U-X. And it, it, it is not a, it's not a caregiver's guidebook. Uh, there were not many guidebooks at the time then, but there are plenty now. But I, we share our story, and there are connections that you may be able to make and uh, in, in, as we shared, as we shared our story. Okay, great. And I, th I think the, the whole journey was 17 years. Uh, yes. How, how many years was she able to be at home? Um, Martha went into an assisted living in 2008, about a decade after uh, she had been diagnosed mm -hmm. and uh, was in an assisted living then. All right, and you said the book is available at Amazon as well as uh, Barnes and Noble, and great. And I know that you also have uh, a website. Uh, Carl, yeah. Can you let us know how people can can find you or be in yeah. touch or learn more about this whole, you know, fascinating process that nobody wants to face, but it's good to know that we have such an eloquent, caring guide if, if necessary. Yeah, so on, on my website is a blog that I started in, in, in 2015. Martha died in 2014. And uh, the, the website is www.carlinmaddox.com. And I've got an email address that you can get in touch with me on. You can sign up uh, for the blog, and there's no there's no charge, and you'll receive some notices from me, and I will give you a link to the archive of my previous posts, about 100, 120 of them that 
not just our story, but I've also written the stories of uh, many others through this time as well. Okay, and we'll have all this material in the show notes too, so that uh, people will be able to, you know, learn more about it. And Carlin, I just can't thank you enough for sharing of yourself and your story and helping so many others. I know you do this on a regular basis. I've heard you on other podcasts, and I know that your work is helping others to cope with something that, you know, we didn't learn about in school, how to be, you know, a caring uh, spouse for somebody with, or or friend or child with somebody who's dealing with Alzheimer's. So again, thank you very, very much. And I hope that all listeners will tell friends about it, particularly if they are dealing with this subject. Please download the podcast, rate it, review it. And please, I know that Carlin has so much to offer that, uh, you know, get the book and get to his website and uh, be real, real helpful to you. So that brings to the conclusion, another episode and very special one of Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. Please be back next week when we'll have another interesting and informative guest and someone who will help us become a better version of ourselves. Until then, feel free and I hope you will visit uh, my website, mentalhealthgym.com. And uh, in the meantime, you know, everybody stay positive, stay safe, be back next week. Look forward to it. And thanks again to Carlin Maddox. Thank you.